My aim was to get through the end of the chapter. I, I don't think we're going to do that. I think we're going to get through one heading. And I'll explain more about how the rest of this chapter clearly breaks down into sections. Um, but I've titled this lesson tonight, The Beauty of the Lord. And I think you'll see why in a moment. When evangelizing a lost person, one of the questions that I like to ask is, what makes something beautiful? What makes something beautiful? Beauty exists because God exists, and God is a God of beauty. Things appear beautiful to us because we've been created in the image of God. We have the, uh, the Imago Dei. Uh, even though it's been marred to some degree and has been mysteriously damaged but yet not lost, uh, we still see certain things as beautiful. Um, for instance, there is a beauty that is inherent in a rose, and it is a different beauty than that beauty of a snow-capped mountain. Both are beautiful in their own respect, but there is a beauty there. There's a difference in beauty between a rainbow trout and a horse. There's a difference in beauty um, between a sunset uh, over the ocean and a sunset in the desert. There's a distinctive beauty there. And ultimately what makes something beautiful to us, uh, some people like to throw out the little catchy pithy phrase that beauty is in the eye of the beholder, which is nothing more than uh, subjectivism, really, and moral relativism, but um, for, it, for the life of me, I don't understand why anybody would find a pug beautiful. <laughs> why people find those little wily-eyed dogs uh, cute, I have no idea, but uh, beauty is the mark of God. Something is beautiful because God has created it beautiful. Uh, the beauty that is in creation tells, of, tells us of uh, the mind of God. The mind of God is is beautiful. The character of God, his, his character is beautiful. And, and that's one of the reasons, by the way, there's a beauty in peoples. We see a lot today of this idea that somehow people are pushing in cultural Marxism and woke ideologies and those sorts of things. They're pushing this idea that you should repent of your skin color. Uh, in cultural Marxism, they esteem certain races above or below other nations uh, based on skin color or ethnicity or whatever it may be, pet nation or whatever it is. And then they ultimately land in this, this uh, Darwinistic idea that these people need to repent of their whiteness or repent of their um, cultural background. And really what's that, what that is doing is throwing the created design of God back in his face. It's essentially saying that, that uh, you know, I've been created in a certain way and I need to repent of that. It was outside of your control, but I need to repent of that. Such ideas are chaotic and insane. But nevertheless, they are very prevalent in our culture. And, and what we see here in Revelation chapter 21 is that God has created beauty not only in the creation that we see here, but in the, in the eternal state that is to come. And he has also created beauty among the peoples, among nations. There is a beauty in someone with black or brown skin 
that is a different beauty than somebody with white skin. There is a beauty in the, the Jewish lineage of Abraham, true Israel. There's a beauty there, and there's a beauty in uh, someone of the Alaskan Inuits. God has, why do you think God has created such diversity among the peoples? It's because there is beauty in God's design, and he has desired it to be that way. And what we see today is a rejection not only of the created beauty in one's skin color, but the created beauty in one's gender. Uh, there, is, there is something to be said when somebody affirms that they are born a woman and they embrace the fact that they are a woman, and it's beautiful to do so because it's created in the image of God. Same thing with manhood and masculinity. There is beauty there. God has designed it. And what we see here in Revelation 21 is a clear description of the beauty of God, the beauty of the coming celestial city, and the beauty of the nations. So what we're going to do in the remaining time that we have, we're going to read verses 9 through 27, uh, maybe into chapter 22, verse 2, and then we're going to just look at the first heading uh, as much as time remains. So look at Revelation 21, verse number 9, and just follow along with me as I read uh, about the eternal state, the new heaven and the new earth, and the new Jerusalem. Verse 9. The one, excuse me, then one of the seven angels who have the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues came and spoke with me saying, come here, I will show you the bride, the wife of the lamb. And he carried me away in the spirit to a great and high mountain and showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. Having the glory of God, her brilliance was like precious stone, as a stone of crystal clear jasper. It had a great and high wall. It had 12 gates, and at those gates, 12 angels. And names have been written on those gates, which are the names of the twelve tribes of the sons of Israel. Verse 13, there were three gates on the east, three gates on the north, and three gates on the south, and three gates on the west. And the wall of the city had twelve foundation stones, and on them were the twelve names of the twelve apostles of the Lamb. And the one who spoke with me had a gold measuring rod to measure the city and its gates and its walls, and the city is laid out as a square, and its length is as great as the width. And he measured the city with the rod, 12,000 stadia, or I think your Bible translation may have furlongs there. Its length width and width and height are equal. Verse 17. And he measured its wall, 144 cubits, according to human measurements, or the measurements of a man, which are also angelic measurements. And the material of the wall was jasper, and the city was pure gold, like pure glass. The foundation stones of the city wall were adorned with every kind of precious stone. The first foundation stone was jasper, the second sapphire, the third chalcedony, the fourth emerald, the fifth sardonyx, the sixth sardius, the seventh chrysolite, the eighth beryl, the ninth Topaz, the tenth chrysoprase, the eleventh jacinth, the twelfth amethyst, and the twelve gates were twelve pearls, 
which one of the gates was a single pearl. Each one of the gates was a single pearl, single pearl. And the street of the city was pure gold like transparent glass. And I saw no sanctuary in it, for the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb are its sanctuary. And the city has no need of the sun or of the moon to shine on it, for the glory of God has illuminated it, and its lamp is the Lamb. And the nations will walk by its light, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. And its gates will never be closed by day, for there will be no night there. And they will bring the glory and honor of the nations into it. And nothing defiled and no one who practices abomination and lying shall ever come into it, but only those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. Chapter 22. Then he showed me a river of the water of life, bright as crystal, coming from the throne of God and of the Lamb. In the middle of its street, on either side of the river, was the tree of life, bearing twelve kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit every month. And the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. So this section of scripture that we've just read, verses 9 through 27, we're not going to venture into chapter 22. It essentially breaks into three pieces, um, four, depending on how you're dividing the description of the celestial city or the heavenly Jerusalem. But what we're going to see in verses 9 through 21 is the beauty of the bride, the beauty of the bride. In verses 22 and 23 just those two verses, we see the glory of the throne, the glory of the throne. And then in the remaining remaining portions of the chapter, verses 24 through 27, the beauty of the nations. So you have the beauty of the bride, the glory of the throne, and the beauty of the nations. First, the beauty of the bride. Well, we met this personification the simile mentioned in the opening verses of this, the bride is uh, the wife of the Lamb. It is the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, made ready as a bride, adorned for her husband. This bride is not, can, should not be confused with the bride mentioned in the New Testament, only in the sense that the, the bride, the New Jerusalem, is characterized by those who dwell within it. So this bride is, is mentioning, being mentioned in reference to the new Jerusalem, the holy city, the heavenly Jerusalem, the capital of heaven, coming down out of heaven in verse 10. It is characterized by the redeemed, those who dwell within the walls of this city. Uh, they are saints, Old Testament saints, tribulation saints, and the saints of the church age. This is all the body of Christ characterizing this bride, the wife of the Lamb. Uh, They dwell within this city, this holy city, Jerusalem. Uh, There's some questions that arise in verse 9. One of the seven angels who have the seven bowls, written in that that, uh, sense that John is describing there, that they presently have, the present tense, they presently have the seven bowls of the seven last plagues. That's the, the angel that is going to be pouring out the wrath of God at the final portion of the tribulation. So there is a sense in which John is writing about obviously future things while he is still understanding that the tribulation is yet future. 
in the time that he is writing this, if that makes sense to you. Um, This angel says, come here, I will show you the bride, the wife of the lamb. Verse 10, notice that John is carried away in the spirit. And he carried me away in the spirit to a great and high mountain. This, This is another vision similar to what Paul experienced in 2 Corinthians chapter 12 that he says, I could not... I cannot describe uh, a man 14 years ago. I was caught up to the third heaven and that he saw things that he was not permitted to speak about. Um, This is the same sort of vision that John is being carried away. He is not in a dream. This is a supernatural transportation out of the material world enabled by the Holy Spirit to see and to perceive things that are just simply incomprehensible to the human mind as we know it right now. Um, This phrase is also found at the beginning of the book of Revelation where John describes being carried away in the spirit. He is carried away to see this heavenly city, this celestial city, the new Jerusalem, the holy city Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God. Now that raises some questions immediately because uh, we know that from Jerusalem, the earthly Jerusalem, Christ will reign during the millennial kingdom. So what we can deduce is that there is a heavenly city. There is a heavenly capital city that is presently in heaven and that Jerusalem will come down. It is unlike anything that this world has ever seen. It is it goes by the same name. It is the holy city, Jerusalem. So it will not be what we know in this life um, as the city of Jerusalem. She is coming down as a bride adorned for her husband. The new Jerusalem is, as I said, characterized by its inhabitants, the redeemed. Both Jew and Gentile are the people of God. We cannot confuse the Israelites or Israel with the church. They are distinct. We must be sure to embrace that. Um, The church has not replaced Israel. Um, There's clear ethnic distinction here. There's clear ethnic distinction. This clear ethnic distinction is even recognized in the eternal state. That is very important. It is even recognized in the eternal state. Having the glory of God. Look at verse 11. What wonder that John is describing Having the glory of God, her brilliance was like precious stone, as a stone of crystal clear jasper. This phrase, having the glory of God. Just think about that for a moment. The very glory of God is associated with this heavenly city. It has, it possesses the very glory of God. Um, Maybe your minds are being sparked back to what we're actually going to be preaching on on Sunday out of Exodus chapter 33 when Moses says, show me your glory. He asks God to show him his glory. And God says to Moses there, and just to briefly whet your appetite with this, in Exodus 33, then Moses said, I pray you, show me your glory. And he said, the Lord said, I myself will make all my goodness pass before you and I will proclaim the name of Yahweh before you and I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and I will show compassion on whom I will show compassion but the Lord said you cannot see my face that's what he told Moses you cannot see me why 
for no man can see me and live. So, so just think about what John just said in Revelation 21, verse 11. The glory of God is associated with this city, and John is seeing the glory of God. Whereas in Exodus 33, God tells Moses, you can't see my glory because you would die. So now the full glory of God is being openly displayed in the eternal state. It's something that is incomprehensible to our finite human minds. It will require glorified eyes, glorified bodies, glorified minds to comprehend the glory of God without becoming incinerated. When Moses asked God to show him his glory, God says, you can't see my face, you'd die. But the eternal state is the place where we will see his face. Yahweh said, behold, is by me as a place, he says to Moses, and you shall stand there on the rock and it will come about while my glory is passing by that I will put you in the cleft of the rock and cover you with my hand until I have passed by. And then I will remove my hand and you shall see my back, but my face you shall not see. That's what he told Moses, the great leader of Israel who led the people of Israel out of bondage in Egypt. He could not see the glory of God, but in the celestial city, city, we will see him as he is, John records in 1 John chapter 3. We shall see him as he is. The holy city Jerusalem is the capital of heaven presently. It is presently the capital of heaven and will come down from heaven, if you notice that in verse 10. Then we begin to hear this beautiful description that John is setting forth as he paints the picture in our minds about the material description as well as the size, the dimensions, uh, and the beauty and wonder and brilliance. So what we're going to do is just look at this. John describes four aspects of this holy city. I'm going to give them to you now. One is the city itself. He's describing this celestial city, this heavenly city, this heavenly Jerusalem. He's describing that city, and it is described in a umbrella-like fashion by crystal clear jasper. Jasper is not what you think it may be as in the stone that we know as jasper presently. This is a transliteration of the Greek word that that is describing a clear-like diamond stone with light coming out of it. Um, It's not the jasper that we would understand it to be today presently. It's, it's a transliteration of the Greek word. He's also describing the wall. So he describes the city itself. He describes the wall. He describes the gates. And he describes the foundations. So you have the city, the wall, the gates, and the foundations. First, the city. It's crystal clear, jasper. Just an eruption of light from this clear, diamond-like city. This is like a crystal clear diamond gem with, with light just the glory of God exploding out of it. The wall is mentioned to be in verse 12 as a great and high wall. It has, notice the emphasis on the number 12. Not that you're going to try to place some sort of significance to that number. Try not to do that. Resist the temptation to go pick 12 things in your mind and in your world and place them into the text. Um, God is just mentioning many times the number 12 gates and those gates 12 angels. That means that there's an angel associated with each gate. Much speculation has been derived from these emphasis to the point where people then allegorize the text. 
and they do not take a literal approach to this, which I think is very dangerous when you begin to allegorize this passage. There's 12 angels at each one of the gates, and the names have been written on those gates, which are the names of the 12 tribes of the sons of Israel. I think it's important to mention that the description here, and I, I'm fringing on the extent of a literal translation in the sense that I'm saying, in the Old Testament, the Jewish people were given special revelation from God. They were given the oracles of God. In a sense, they are the uh, carrying the special revelation of God in that they revealed the law of God. They were the gate to God, not that Israel is the gate to God or the way. Jesus says, I am the door. But they were pointing people to God. They had the oracles of God. They were entrusted with the oracles of God, as Romans uh, chapter 9 and 11 describe. So in a very real sense, this association with the gates to the city uh, does have a metaphorical application in the sense that the 12 tribes of Israel in the Old Testament were revealing who God is, the character of God in the Psalms, the history of God's faithfulness. And then there were three gates on the east, three gates on the north, three gates on the south, and three gates on the west. Whether these are side by side, we don't know. Uh, they're probably evenly spread out across these 1,500 miles squared. This is a massive city. Ezekiel describes a similar description of Jerusalem. It's a different Jerusalem. It would be the millennial kingdom Jerusalem. But Ezekiel, and Ezekiel writes about this this uh, 12 gates around the city of Jerusalem, all having the 12 tribes associated with each gate. But this is an entirely new city of Jerusalem. And on the foundations, 12 foundations, verse 14, and the wall of the city had 12 foundation stones. And it would be important to note, and I hope your mind is being drawn that direction, that the foundation of the apostles mentioned in Ephesians chapter 2 and verses 20 and 21. They are the foundation of the apostles on which the church is uh, built, Christ being the cornerstone. And on them were the 12 names of the 12 apostles. So we see the Old Testament association as well as the New Testament association. Mind you that the 12 apostles were Jewish. They were Jews. They were called out of Israel to take the gospel to the nations. This raises another question, and I yeah. think I'm going to anticipate it. Are you saying 12 or 13? Well, <laughs> you know, we debated it. Was Matthias or really God's choice, or did, or did Peter then jump ahead of what God wanted? Yeah. Because you know, Paul was included in this. Yeah, you're following. I, I actually have that uh, that question here, and I'm going to I'm going to try to just give you my. We don't know. I'll answer it right now that we don't know, but God knows, and we're happy to know that God knows. But it's obviously not Judas. It's obviously not Judas. Um, but the 12 apostles were called out of Israel. I like what Walverd says. He says, quote, There has been much speculation as to why the names of the 12 apostles are used in this connection. But the most obvious answer is that they have a prominent place in the program of God in relation to the New Jerusalem. I think that's really important. Um, now, with regard to the question of Matthias or Paul, uh, as you are well aware, Judas was disposed as, a, as a, a disciple of Jesus Christ, and somebody had to take his apostleship, and it needed to be someone who walked with Jesus in his earthly ministry. I heard... Um, 
Actually, it was Professor Halstead who gave an excellent description about this, and I'm going to actually side with him on this. With regard to Matthias, uh, he, he was the one that was, they drew straws to fill the place of Judas, and he was walking with Jesus um, during his earthly ministry. So he was there prior to the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. He would have been a, a witness to the resurrected Jesus Christ. Um, and he would have been well associated with the Jerusalem church. We don't hear anything else after that. Uh, Professor Varner says that Matthias was the, the disciple's choice while Paul was God's choice. So who's going to be the 12th stone here? I tend to think that it's probably Paul, but it's, we really have nothing to base that on other than the fact that Paul says, am I not an apostle? Uh, did Paul not see the resurrected Lord? Was Paul not given special miracle powers to demonstrate that he was a gospel minister? Um, you know, was he sent out by the Lord Jesus Christ? Of course, he has all the marks of an apostle. The only thing that Paul was lacking is that he did not walk with Jesus during his earthly ministry. And uh, I think we see the distinction there between Matthias and Paul in that regard. So who this 12th stone is representing? We'll wait and find out to be continued. <laughs> uh, but the speculation that really, you know, to speculate to it with dogma, it really doesn't matter. God knows. And I'm glad that you thought that too, because I was thinking that this afternoon as I was reconsidering these things. I thought, well, you know, much debate wages around Matthias or Paul. Um, I, I tend to think it's probably Paul, but the Lord has a good way of proving me wrong often. Notice the dimensions of the city. Verse 15 says, The one who spoke with me had a gold measuring rod. These measuring rods were usually the, the about six feet, maybe seven. Um, some were longer, but they needed to be manageable, so you're not going to be walking around with a 16-foot-long reed. Um, so they were measure, measurable, manageable. And the city is magnificent in its dimension. The measure of the city and its gates and its walls and the city, verse 16, is laid out as a square. So you know what a square is. It's perfectly square and its length is as great as its width. And he measured the city with the rod 12,000 stadia or furlongs. A furlong is about 600 feet. So if you do the math, um, thankfully other theologians have done it for me already. You come up with about 1,342 miles. So roughly, give or take, 1500 miles square so you have 1500 miles in one direction multiplied by 1500 miles another direction and you have a massive city this is the dimension of the city walls it's a perfect square and the height of verse 17 he measured the wall 144 cubits according to a human measurements that's its height which are also angelic measurements just a side note there on angelology it would appear that angels relatively are about the size of a man. Um, they obviously are great in strength, but uh, they are masculine in nature, and uh, they, they are relatively probably the size of a man. But if you can get a grasp of this, 1,500 miles, it's about from Bedford to West Texas. That's about 1,500 miles, and that's one length of the wall uh, with regard to dimension of this city, this city alone. 
So 1,500 miles from Bedford to West, West Texas and then take a, a vertical direction um, from Bedford to central Canada. It's a massive city. Um, they are literal measurements. There's no reason that we shouldn't think that they are not literal measurements. Um, it doesn't make any sense. Um, we think about all the people that should, should be fitting in that. Think almost that much, you know, all the people that would be in heaven. I, that's, that's interesting. I was thinking that today as well. You think about all the redeemed, all of the redeemed, and there would be plenty of room in that that square footage of something like, I don't know how many million square miles. And the gates are open. And as we'll see in the end of this chapter, it appears that people are permitted to just come and go. It appears that in the eternal state, we're going to have freedom to come and go in and out of the city. And that, that's, what, that's what also kind of amplifies the fact of the beauty of the nations in that these nations are free to come and go and bring the glory and honor of the nations in and out of the city. So there's, there's the redeemed that characterize the city. They seem to be dwelling within the city, but it also appears that there are the redeemed just freely moving about the new heavens and the new earth, even outside of the city. It, it would appear that there are nations it appears that there are borders, and that not borders in the sense of limits, but um, a sinless eternal state where Christ reigns from this eternal city. Um, in these closing minutes here, let's just look at these stones and get up to verse 21. The beauty of this city is, is it's brilliant. It is, it is spectacular. This is a massive city. And we're going to see this, guys. That's what is so mind-blowing. This is as real as we are in this room right now. We are going to see this and touch this and be there. The Verse 18 says, the material of the wall was jasper. Well, we know what that is. Jasper is that translucent diamond-like gem uh, with light just erupting out of it. It's a transliteration from the Greek word. And the city was pure gold like pure glass. Not gold in the sense that we dig out of the dirt here in this earth. But this is like a transparent golden glass. Pure without ripple, without defect, without blemish. It is, it is wondrous to envision. The foundation stones of the city were all adorned with every kind of precious stone. Uh, precious stone there not only associates with beauty, but but wealth, um, value. The first foundation stone was jasper. That's mentioned three times here, rather significant. The second was sapphire. Now, I, I looked up what these were today, and many of you probably know what they are, but um, sapphire is this explosively ocean blue color. It is gorgeous. It, and if you can picture, it is transparent, and if you can picture when the light comes into these gemstones, it just fractures and erupts out of this. And we are talking about sapphire and chalcedony, and all these stones are just massive. This is characteristic of the city wall. So if you picture walking up to the city wall, light is just exploding out of it in all these various different beautiful colors. Isn't it, now, now let me just ask you a question in passing and in closing. What makes us look at a sapphire stone? I found one online today. It was about the size of a, like a golf, a softball, baseball size. Huge. Worth millions of dollars. Perfect. 
Now, what makes that rock, it's what it is, it's just a rock, what makes us look at that and say, oh, wow, that is beautiful. Now, obviously, the cut and the clarity and all those different things come into play and how the jeweler can tailor that and make it look good and bring the light in and fracture it all around. But God made that. It is beautiful because it came from the mind of God. And when we picture these beauty, and when a man sees those things, and when a woman sees those things, you can't help but just say, oh, wow, that's beautiful. And when you think about a whole city adorned with these magnificent precious stones, it's almost incomprehensible. The third stone is Chalcedony. This would have been a stone found in Chalcedon. Maybe some of you have heard of the Chalcedonian Creed. The Chalcedonian Creed is a very significant creed, which distinguishes and established in the doctrine of the dual nature of Christ, that, God is, that Christ is fully God and fully man. Chalcedony was sky blue and clear. A picture like blue, clear water. Emerald, we know what that is. It's a deep ocean foam green. Sardonyx is red in color with these white layers in it. Very brilliant, almost like a, like a rock candy cane. Sardius, orangish red quartz. Sometimes you find sardius stones that are blood red and transparent. Some have called it the ox blood gem. It is an explosion of red color. Chrysolite is yellowish green like amber or like sap. Uh, sap does have a beauty and in, in, in when you don't touch it, but when it's hardened, it has the, an amber beauty. Barrel is blue-green, sometimes red. It can be blue-green or it can be sometimes red. Red barrel, you may have heard of red barrel more than you've heard of the blue-green barrel. Um, topaz is a pale blue or golden brown colored stone. These are all precious stones that are being associated with the wall of uh, the new, the new Jerusalem, the holy Jerusalem. Chrysopras is a turquoise green. If you've seen turquoise, it's that blue color. Um, it's not a transparent stone. If you, if you picture uh, uh, chrysopras, it's a turquoise green. It's a green turquoise. Jason, jacinth or jasonith is yellow red or amber color, and amethyst is a breathtaking. Anybody know what color amethyst is? Off the top of your mind? What'd you say, Jane? It's a beautiful purple. It is, it is. When I looked up amethyst and I typed it in today, I, I literally saw that and I went, oh, wow. It, it was, it's, an, it's a wondrous, breathtaking purple. And God made that. God came up with the color purple. Interesting fact. Um, you know the acronym ROYGBIV? Do you know what ROYGBIV stands for? It's the colors of the rainbow. Um, if you look at the gay pride flags, there's six colors. But the, God, the rainbow that God made has seven. Isn't that interesting? And, and it's almost like a reminder that six is the number of a man. And seven symbolizes the perfection of God. Or completeness. Well, our time is up. Um, just in closing, each gate is made of pearl. Uh, the 12 gates were 12 pearls. This is where people get the idea of the pearly gates. No, Peter is not standing there. Each one of the gates was a single pearl. 
uh, and the street of the city was pure gold like transparent glass. What a breathtaking image. What a breathtaking and brilliant depiction that John gives us of the heavenly Jerusalem that will come down where we will dwell for eternity with the Lamb. And uh, as we'll see next week, there needs to be no sun, no moon, no lamps, no candles, because the Lamb of God is there and He is the light. The glory of God is associated with this place. Um, Just by way of closing, you know, and I'll I'll leave you with this. John chapter 14, verses 1 uh, through 6. Uh, Jesus begins that chapter by saying, Let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many dwelling places, or many uh, rooms. I go to prepare a place for you. Um, And uh, if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you unto myself, so that where I am, there you may be also. Uh, But Jesus promises us that he is, one, we know he is perfect. And he says, I'm going to prepare a place for you. Well, the place that he is preparing is this heavenly abode for all eternity. It is prepared. It is presently situated. It is awaiting the descent out of heaven to come to to be upon the earth. But as I was thinking about this today, when Jesus says, I go to prepare a place for you, he is telling his disciples that, that that little word, go, he's telling them, I'm going to bear your sin penalty. I'm going to die upon the cross so that you will have a place with me forever. I'm going to prepare a place for you. Don't let your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. But the going is so significant. We just read right past this and say, hey, look, he's going to prepare a place for me. Yeah, he did. He went. And what he did was he died upon the cross that we would have a place in eternity. And I, and I hope that we never forget the cost. All this brilliance and beauty that's depicted in the walls and in the city on the streets. You know, yes, we love the streets of gold. We can't, we can't imagine what the beauty is going to be of the city. But the most precious aspect of this city is that that is where our Savior is. And that will be the most beautiful aspect of eternity. And I can't wait. (laughs) I can't wait. Um, So much more we can say. We'll pick up there next week. But uh, questions or thoughts?